So um, this summer, we're looking at the Psalms, basically from May through August. We're obviously not going to look at all 150 of them, but we've taken four different categories, and we're looking at roughly four each. So the Psalm 1 tells us what the godly man is, what the flourishing person looks like. And that was our focus in May. And then Psalm 2 points us to the great king and God's big work in the world. And that's what we're looking at uh, this month <coughs> and a following on that. And today we turn to one of those passages about the king, and that is in Psalm 45. So let's uh, give attention to God's holy word and hear what the Lord would teach us. Psalm 45, for the director of music to the tune of the lilies of the sons of Korah, a masculine, a wedding song. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in that cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. By anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and acacia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her, those brought to be with her. Led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you and give you praise, O Lord, that you take an interest in us to teach us and instruct us and show us the way of righteousness. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to see great things in your word, help us to see the glory of Christ and the glory that you put in your church, and to make that our chief delight. O Lord, we pray that you would bless every person here. We thank you for gathering us this morning for the opportunity to worship you, for the freedom we have to enter into your heavenly throne room through the boldness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, for the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us to understand who you are and walk in your ways and have new power and new life. We thank you, O Lord, for your church and the blessing of your people. We thank you for the word and sacraments and so many gifts you give us to lead us on the way. And so, Lord, we pray that in accordance with all your goodness and all that you've done for us, you would continue to bless us now. And help us to see you in in a new and greater way than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen. So love stories are definitely one of the great stories of the human race. And that's why the psalmist begins as he's singing about a love story. 
My heart is stirred by a noble theme. And, and it's, a, it's a subject of many of our movies and our songs and so on. And, you know, I can testify myself that apart from God himself, the best thing I have enjoyed in my life is my marriage to my wife. That has been one of the, is the greatest thing that I've experienced in this, in this world. It's an amazing, amazing blessing. But you know, it's also true that while marriage can also be, be one of the greatest things, it can also be one of the most painful things. Because, uh, and you know, we know this, you listen to the radio, it's all about love, right? I mean, all the pop songs, they're all about love, but also about broken love and how much that hurts because we invest so much into it. So I have a friend, he's, he's single, um, he, he, is not, he doesn't even have a girlfriend, but he is already planning in his wedding to sing a song. And uh, he loves the, the group Coldplay, and so he's going to sing Yellow to his, to his bride. But I've told him that, that you should sing instead God is Enough by Lecrae. I think that would be a lot better song sing in a marriage. Not really. Actually, I think it'd be a really bad idea to make that the song you sing to your wife. On your wedding day, however, the truth of it is one that will actually cause your marriage to thrive. And it's really the truth we're looking at here, which is the fact that we need to put marriage and love in perspective. Because while it's an amazing thing, as I said, I mean, I'm truly thankful from the depths of my heart for the marriage that I have with my wife. It's the great, greatest gift that God has given me in this world. But it's not the be-all and end-all. It's not the ultimate thing. It's not the most important relationship. Because God created marriage to actually be a reflection of that which was, does fulfill us in every way. And that is the marriage of the Son of God to the church. You see, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity has existed as one God from all eternity. And that's why they can, God, we can say God is love. Because God is not just one person. He is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who have loved each other in an amazing way from all eternity. But the Father wanted to glorify the Son. And one of the ways he did that was to say, I'm going to create a bride for my Son. And it, what it meant is that he was going to create human beings who would have an amazing, intimate union with him as their, as their Lord and as their God. But yet humanity wandered from that and they were unfaithful and they went after other husbands. And you can see a lot of the story of the Old Testament is about God pursuing the bride, Israel, and Israel being unfaithful, very, very unfaithful at times. And yet God continuing to pursue them to to make a bride for his son that is pure and spotless and beautiful to present to his son so the son might be glorified and that humanity might be blessed. And so that's the big picture of what God is doing in the world. God is making a new bride for his son. And the marriages that we have, there's many marriages here, are but a reflection of that true, the truest, most pure most glorious, infinitely glorious relationship between Christ and his church. So that's what we're going to consider this morning and try to draw out some implications of it. The way the psalm presents to us this idea of a marriage between Christ and the church is really in two snapshots. The first snapshot is a picture of the groom, the king who is a groom, and then secondly, of the bride. 
So those would be the two points that I want to make, and then I'll draw out some conclusions from what, from what I've said. So let's look first at the, at the groom. And basically, we have a description of the groom. The groom is described uh, directly. He is speak, the psalmist is speaking to him in second person, saying, you. And he's de- writing words to the king. And so let's consider briefly what this passage says about this groom. So first, he is the most excellent of men. It says, you are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. So there is a greatest man of all time, <laughs> and it is this person who is the, the, the I don't want to say the goat, but I, it's like, that's the, it just seems utterly wrong, but it's like, what came into my head, right? So he's the most excellent. He's the, literally the best human being that has ever existed. The most excellent of men, blessed forever. And one of the things about him is that he loves truth. And he fights for what is true and right and good. It says, in your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. And so he's for what's good. He's for what's right. He stands on principle. And not only that, he does it well because he's a mighty warrior. It says, let your right hand achieve awesome deeds, in verse 4. That he's going to fight, and he's going to win, and he's going to crush those who would oppose him. Because he's the best warrior. He is he's the best. No one is going to defeat him. But whatever he does, even though he has all this power, he's going to use it rightly. You know, it's sometimes we fear giving power to people because they're going to misuse it. Not this one. Not this groom. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. So we can completely say this person can have all the power because everything they're going to do is right. Everything they decide will be the right decision for everybody. It will be in accordance with justice because he is one who loves righteousness. Verse 7, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. What that means is he loves that which is in accord with reality, that which is good, That which is right, that which is true, he loves that, and he has that in himself. As a result, he's also filled with joy. Look at verse 7. It says, Therefore God your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. You know, sometimes we think that joy comes from having, having the right things or the right people or the right things outside of us, being in the right city, right town, right school, whatever. But what we see here is, is the joy comes from being the right type of person. Because he's a just person, because he loves righteousness, therefore he experiences joy. But also, he does have riches. He has endless resources. It says in verse 8, All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and acacia, from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings make you glad. And so as a result... Not surprisingly, he has a beautiful bride. So men, this is your standard. If you want to have a beautiful bride, this is what you've got to be like. Exactly what's here. I'm kind of joking, right? I mean, we're not even coming close, right? You listen to that and it's like, whoa. But we're trying. We're, we're that is the picture of a godly man, a godly person who, who thinks outside of himself and seeks to serve with justice and righteousness and purity and do good things. But now, the most important description of him 
is that, it, that and the one thing that makes him what he is and uniquely suited to be the one in whom we can find all our hopes and dreams fulfilled is that not that he's the greatest human being of all time, though he is a human being, but that he is also God himself. It is the eternal son of God become a human being in order to connect with humans and enable them to find all their fulfillment in him. Look at verse 6. Remember what I said is that this passage is speaking in the second person. That means he's talking to you, and the you is the king. And he's saying, you are this, you are this, you are this. But listen to what he calls him in verse 6. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So he calls this king, the most excellent of men, human beings, and he calls him God. And so we have here the God-man, the one in whom we can give everything to because he's no mere man, but he is the God-man. This is what we heard in our call to worship. Because in Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews is comparing angels to the Son. And he says, Who did, which of the angels did he ever say this and this and this? And then he turns to Psalm 45. Remember, he said, this is what... What the Father says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so he is the eternal God. You know, um, and in verse 7 it says, therefore God, your God. So there's also a distinction within God. Because he's not just Son, he's not just Father, he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons and one eternal God. And this is the teaching of the entire Bible from the beginning unto the end. It's not just in the New Testament that we find that God is three in one. It's not just there that we find that the Son of God is the eternal God come in flesh. It's also described here in this passage and many other places. And so we believe that because the Bible teaches us God has revealed himself as the three in one and the second person has become a human being to be the husband of the bride, his new bride, to connect with human beings in the most intimate way, and bless them in a way that only he can do so. And so, that's what we need to see here, is that, you know, what we tend to do, as we look at, we, because it's such a good relationship, and because it's got, it is such an amazing thing, or can be, we tend to look at marriage and say, now in marriage, this is the person who will fulfill all my hopes and dreams. This is the person whom I will truly find blessing. Now, I will say, you can find some of those things. You can find some blessings, but not all of them. They are not the one to fulfill your deepest desires. That is only in the marriage of the son to the church. It is only in the relationship that we have with God that we find the fulfillment that our hearts are looking for. And if we try to make our marriage that, then we're going to end up in problems. And a lot of the problems in marriage come from the fact that we try to make them the relationship of Christ with the bride, the church, rather than a reflection of that. And so that's what we have to remember. Our goal in our marriage and in our lives is to glorify the Son, just as it is the Father's goal to glorify the Son. Now, Because of who the Son is, we're called to do something. And let's look then at the second point, which is the glory of the bride. 
But it doesn't immediately start talking about the glory of the bride. It's a call to the bride. Listen to what it says in verse 10. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. So this takes from the concept of marriage the idea that God enunciated in Genesis chapter 2, where he said that for this reason a, father, that a, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall, the two shall become one flesh. And you see that the idea is that, that what God was saying is that when it comes to human relationships, when you, have, uh, when you have a husband and wife come together, then that relationship becomes the first priority. That is, becomes the first relationship as far as human beings go. And so what that means is, then the relationship with the father and the, your father and your mother, that becomes secondary. And it means that your relationship with your children has to become secondary. And it means that your relationship with your friends has, has got to become secondary. Now, you need all those relationships. But when you say those are important and actually marriage thrives best when we have a lot of people in our lives. But, but they, those things can never be the priority. That's where this call comes from. And what that reflects is the idea that what human beings are created to do is to make God their first priority. To make our marriage with God our intimate connection with him, the first thing for us, the first priority. And what does that look like? Well, first of all, it means that we accept his offer of marriage. So that's one thing. Human beings have become severed from God because of their sin, but God has made a way back in through the cross of Christ, and he now invites each one of you and me to come back to that relationship. So we need to say yes to that relationship. We need to say, I want to have that relationship restored. So that's where it begins. If you've never done that, if you've never accepted that, then today is the day to do that because that is where your blessing will be found. If you need to think about that, if you have questions about that, you should talk to me because this is the big issue of life. But then secondly, it means that we make that relationship a priority. And what does it mean to have a relationship with God? It means that we, we live in communion and fellowship with him. So we listen to his word, we see him and think about him as in his creation, and we speak to him through prayer. And it means we devote time to it. We can't say that something is our priority if we don't give time to it. It means that when it comes to the Lord, what, he comes first. It means in regards to our energy, in regards to our time, in regards to our money, he gets the first place. So that is the, that's where our relationship is developed. But then thirdly, and we can say many other things about it, but it also means that, that where he wants us to go, that's where we go. What he wants us to do, that's, where we, that's, where we, that's where we, what we will do. And, and so it becomes a priority to follow his will, to do what he wants us to do and to be with him where he wants us to go. And you know, when I was thinking about this, uh, I think a, a good example of this is in my, my grandfather, great-grandfather and great-grandmother. Um, because they, the 1920s, they, they had gone to God's School of the Bible in Cincinnati. And then they wanted to be a missionary in Africa. And they lived in southern Indiana. 
And, and the Lord brought them together, and then they decided to go. In the 1920s, <coughs> to what was then Swaziland, a little nation in the middle of South Africa. And one of the things is, today, if people are in South Africa, we can talk to them rather easily. It's still a long flight, but you have flights. You also have email. You have phones that can connect there. In the 1920s, you had none of that. When you were going there, first of all, they didn't even have commercial flights available. They had to go by boat from southern Africa uh, to New York generally. And, and they had to, they write, wrote letters which took weeks or months to get from one side of the Atlantic to the other down to southern Indiana. And they had, they were really saying goodbye to fathers, our father's house our earthly father's house, and we are going to where the Lord says is our home. And, and you know, today it's a little bit different, but I think, man, they, were, they understood what it means. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. That was hard, but they did it because they said the Lord is leading us and his kingdom is first and that relationship is first. Now, the thing about this is, though, it is the way of blessing. Because when, when we become God's people and part of his people, God, is, God is, becomes, you might, as it says here, in, enthralled with our beauty. That he loves us. He, he cares for us. He wants to connect with us. He wants to bless us. He wants to see us prosper and do well. And so he describes what, here what the, what the bride looks like. The bride is one of extraordinary beauty. 13 and 14. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroiled garments she is led to the king. Now sometimes we may look around the church and say, I'm not sure that this is a bride of extraordinary beauty. Now that's not true today. This is a very beautiful crowd that we, that we have here, here today. But sometimes we may wonder, and the fact is, it's not, it's not talking about physical beauty, but it's talking about the glory of the restored image of God, which we have inside us, which the Apostle Paul calls a treasure in jars of clay. Now one day, that glory that we have within us is going to shine forth in a way that will astonish us and everybody, and will shine like the stars of heaven. But for now, we have this treasure in jars of clay. It is the beauty of the restored image of God when we begin to conform ourselves to the character of Christ. But because of this beauty, a couple things happen. One is that people bring their wealth into it. Verse 12, the city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. And when you think about it, it really is, is true in a very literal sense that this has actually happened. All throughout the world, all through the history of the world, the kings and the wealthy have been seeing the church and they give gifts to the church. It's always amazing to me to see the amount of gifts that people will give to the church to support, to support its work, to support its ministry. Sometimes it becomes a problem. We get so many gifts, the church has been distracted and like, hey, we just like the gifts and we forget about everything else. But we see the fulfillment of this prophecy. So on the one thing, there's an, there's an attraction to it. But then the second thing that happens is that they experience joy and gladness. And you can see this in verse 15. Led in with joy and gladness, 
they enter the palace of the king. Now what I said previously is that the son enjoys continuous joy because he is virtuous. He has a character. It's nothing, nobody can touch that. He is who he is. And so that's the source of his joy. But, and that's true for some extent for us as well, but even more so, it's true that, that the son himself is our joy. And that as we trust in him and as we love him and as we see him as great, as he's described here in this passage, that that becomes the source of joy and the world cannot take it away. Whatever happens to us on the outside, however badly things may, may go, whatever may be taken away from us or whatever people may be taken away from us, our joy is rooted in the sun. And even if we sorrow, we say we are sorrowing yet rejoicing because in our deepest heart, we're connected to this great king and groom. But in addition to all this, we have people. Sons, it's described in verse 16. It says, well, you're leaving people behind. Well, listen, your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. And so you may have to leave things to be part of, this, to be part of the bride. But the Lord doesn't leave us there. He blesses us with sons that take the place of our fathers. And as a result, we see that the glory just keeps going. This is a marriage. Some, some marriages that we enter into in this, in this world, especially in this nation, seem to fall apart, and we have struggled with them for a variety of reasons. But this is a marriage that will last forever. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. The bride of Christ is secure because the faithful Lord will keep making us faithful. He'll keep calling us back and he's going to finish what he started. That is the good news for us. Now let me just draw five conclusions very briefly. Um, Just five quick points to, to help you think about process what we've talked about. So remember, then, that as you're thinking about marriage, marriage is not about the marriage. Marriage is about Christ. And the marriage is meant to point to Christ. And so that is the main goal. The main goal is not your happiness. The main goal is not your fulfillment. Though marriage can contribute to that. The main goal is to show forth a picture of Christ and His bride. And as a result... We should give attention to it. We should, we should give attention to our marriage. We should work on it. We should think about it. We should consider what we're doing, how we interact with our spouses, so that we make the marriage what is designed to be, a reflection of Christ and His church. But secondly, remember that it's just a reflection. It's not the ultimate thing. So let's give our spouses a break. And not try to make them God. Or not try to make them the one in whom we find all our hopes and dreams fulfilled. Let's let them just be human. With the limited good they can bring, we accept. With that which they can't provide, we accept that as well. And we look to the author of it as the one who is the source. And we just say, in many ways, we say it's good, but it's just a pointer to the higher good. So we can let our spouse be human. 
Thirdly, if we are not married, if we don't have a, a, a marriage partner, um, whether we're wanting that or not, or you know that's something we desire, or whether and don't have it, or whether it's something that we're okay with just being single. Either way, the fact is, if we don't have the copy, we can have the original. Our maker is our true husband. We can find in him what we're looking for in marriage. The intimacy and union that we have with God as the bride of Christ is that to which our marriage points. So if we don't have that which, to which it points, we have the thing to which it which is pointed to. The real thing. The best thing. And so we don't have to let it cause us so much anxiety. And we can then say, in many ways, if we have the best thing, then if we get a spouse, then that's just gravy. Because we already have the goodness of God, and it's just one more way in which God is showing us his goodness. Fourth, similarly, if you don't have children, or you don't have the children that you want, or the amount you want, <laughs> not, I know it's not true here, or the amount of, are not able to have children, then here are children. One of the things we need to see, you know, I, I was one who wanted to have a lot of children. And, I ha, I'm not, and in, in the eyes of probably most people, I've succeeded. So uh, I have seven, right? And that's been a good thing. But you know, one of the, and, and, I love, and I love my kids, and I'm truly thankful, but one thing I've seen is that I need more of them. And that doesn't mean that we're going to have any more biological children. No, that is the... T- we've been fruitful, we've multiplied, period. <laughs> but what I've seen is, like, there's other people besides my biological children who need that kind of interaction of a love and care of a father. And that, that, that there's people all around me in whom I can contribute and develop that type of relationship. And so whether you have it or not, the church is a place where we can develop those types of relationships. So don't get too concerned. Again, it's a, it's a hard thing, and I don't want to step... I want to be careful I say this, because I know it's a really... This is a very sensitive topic. But if we don't have the, what we have with our own biological children, what we like, there's other opportunities. That, as he says, the sons will take the place of your fathers. There's other opportunities to fulfill that, to fulfill that desire. And God wants to use you in that way. And so, married or not, let's lift our hearts and lives to the great and glorious King as our highest priority. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the King be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. And in doing that, That is where we will find our blessing as well. Amen.